Yes. It was like Easter came early this morning. We just need lilies and a couple of trumpets, and we would, been, we would be there. Wow. That was good. That line that we just sang, those lyrics were probably unfamiliar, even though the tune wasn't, but I want to read them again. Death no longer has its sting. And to this truth, by hope and faith, we cling. We will reign with Christ forever. That's what we're here to do this morning, is to help one another cling to this truth. Easter Sunday came early. You know, I was thinking about every fall, there's the annual debate about how soon is too soon to sing Christmas songs. And Jackson has weighed in and said that his opinion is never too soon. Um, it's never too soon to celebrate Easter, is it? In fact, every Sunday really is a celebration of Easter. We worship on Sunday because uh, we're remembering the day that God raised Jesus from the tomb and he walked out and he left his grave clothes neatly folded on the bench behind him. I feel the need this morning to celebrate Easter. How about you? In particular, I feel these days that I'm just more aware of the shadow of death that we live with. Next Sunday, we're going to remember the faithful life of Dave Koontz, who crossed the finish line well at 3 p.m. in a memorial service here. But his, the grief of his loss is fresh. The day after that, the next the Monday, the day after that, is going to mark the one-year anniversary that... My dad passed. It was a year ago um, that day that Rob Lister was preaching from our parking lot about life and death from the book of Proverbs as my brother and I sat by my dad's bedside just a couple of miles away and watched the Lord take him home. I've been very aware this week as I've been studying this passage of many of you at Grace who recently have lost a loved one, either born or unborn. Some of you right now, I'm aware, are facing life-threatening conditions. And most of us in just the day that we are living right now have been reminded constantly of our mortality, haven't we? That life is fleeting. You might be trying to ignore that. You might be living in a way you're trying to distract yourself from that with busyness and work or entertainment but it's no, not going away. We live under the shadow of death, and we could all, I think, use a strong reminder this morning of how Jesus feels about the anguish that the shadow of death causes for us, but also what he can do about it and what he has done about it and what he will do one day very soon about it. Our passage in Luke reminds us of all these things. If you turn there to Luke chapter 7, Remember where we left off last week as Jason preached. Um, Jesus um, healed the servant of this centurion and the servant was on the brink of death. And Jesus, the centurion believed, only had to say a word. He didn't have to even be there physically present to heal this servant and save him from death. And Jesus heals this man. And he turns and he tells his disciples and the crowd following him that this centurion's faith makes him marvel and that he hasn't seen faith like this among all of Israel. 
Well, this next scene that we're going to be in this morning happens shortly after that. It begins with the words, soon afterward, and the same people are here with Jesus, the 12, and this large crowd that's following him from town to town as he preaches the, the gospel of the kingdom of God. So let me read our passage today, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Pray for us, and let's hear what God has to say. Got to put these on here. Luke 7. 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Wow. Fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let me pray. Lord, this morning, would you strengthen hands that are feeble? Would you comfort the weak and the distraught? Pray that you would use this word from Luke to help us not lose heart. We ask you to renew our inner self today. Help us fix our eyes on these glorious unseen things, the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that all of our present momentary affliction is preparing for us. Help us this morning to see how temporary our seen sufferings are in light of our future eternal hope. And I pray you'd fill us then with hope in believing in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Luke sets up the scene. It's a very short little story, the way he tells it. The first two verses, he just establishes the setting. What happens? Jesus unexpectedly encounters a funeral procession. He and his disciples and all these followers are heading into another town, presumably for him to continue his ministry. And as he's walking into the city gates, he's met by another large crowd, a particularly tragic and heartbreaking funeral. And in verse 13, first we learn how this hits Jesus emotionally. Jesus' emotional response to what he's just encountered. And then in verse 14 and 15, we see what Jesus is compelled to do. 
how he responds in light of this, how he reacts. And in verses 16 and 17 then, we learn what this miracle leads all these crowds of people to conclude about his identity. And in this, this morning, I want us to see three things that reveal, is revealed to us about who Jesus is that should assure us, reassure us, as we live under the shadow of death. And the first one is this. Jesus hates death. Jesus is not indifferent to death. He's not high and exalted and so far above it in his holiness that it doesn't affect him. He hates it. Look at verse 13. His emotional response when he sees her, notice that it says her. It could have said when he sees him, the man who had died, or when he sees the funeral. But specifically here, when he sees this woman, compassion is stirred up. The NIV says his heart went out to her, and, and he feels compelled in this moment to do what he can do to relieve her grief immediately. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he says, do not weep. What made Jesus' heart go out to this woman in this way? Well, I think we can imagine, first of all, she's burying her child. It's probably my greatest fear as a dad. To imagine standing at the graveside of my son or my daughter and burying them. I've been rereading a biography the last couple of weeks since our, our, our missions, uh, Lift Your Eyes series week of William Carey, who was a missionary in India, and was reminded he had seven children, five boys, two daughters. Both girls died in infancy. His son Peter died at age five. He had to bury him by himself because there were no believers yet in the community where he was ministering. And the Hindu community, for religious and cultural reasons, were unwilling to get involved and and, and help him. And he had to bury his son all by himself in India among these people that he wanted to reach for Christ. And it was just brutal to read. And I'm aware some of you here at Grace, maybe you, if you're watching on our live stream, you know this particular grief. And you've buried a child. My heart's been heavy for you this week and this morning. In fact, this week, one of the days I was on campus, I just took a walk to kind of clear my head and pray about this passage. And I walked around all the way around the front of our patio and stopped again at the tree that we planted there a few years ago. Can you put that picture up? If you've never gone and seen it. Maybe this morning before you leave, go walk out to our front patio and take a look. We planted a tree in memory of the unborn. And every little river rock there at its base was placed there by a parent at Grace as a a reminder and a memorial to a son or a daughter who, who was taken even before their life began. And it's a reminder of the grieves that, the griefs that those parents carry. The grief of a parent bearing a child is deep, and we need to know that it evokes the deep compassion of Jesus. You can put that slide down. This woman's grief is doubled, though, we're told, because not only was this her only son, but she's a widow. Luke tells it like a one-two punch to the gut. Here's this dead man being carried out, and it's her only son. And she was a widow. So this wasn't the first time that she's walked out of these gates dressed in mourning clothes with a crowd like this. 
She already carries the loss of a husband, and now her only son is gone. And think about this. Can you imagine how this scene must have hit home for Jesus, who's the firstborn son of a widow himself? And who, as he is ministering and rushing from town to town, knows that he's actually rushing towards Jerusalem, where very soon his own mother is going to watch him die a horrible death on the cross and be buried in a tomb. You can imagine why this got Jesus. Not only, I don't think, is he compassionate because of who she's lost, but probably for what he knows, the way this is most likely going to impact her life. In that day, in that time, in that setting, to be now without a husband or a living son to provide and protect for her, she was likely very vulnerable potentially facing poverty, destitution, abuse. You know, speaking of Dave Koontz, one of the ways I was humbled by Dave's example to me was the way that to the very end he worked so hard to make sure that no detail was left unthought of in caring for you, Karen, when he went to be with Jesus. In fact, in the last few months, it was common to see a post on Facebook from Karen. Dave would have a couple of hours of of good feeling strong, and he didn't squander it. He'd be up in the woodshop fixing something, building something to give, to pass along to a child or a grandchild or baking something for Karen in the kitchen. I mean, to the very end, and I was texting with Karen a couple of weeks ago, and Karen said, Dave said to her at one point when the weakness was increasing, he said, the hardest thing about this is getting to the point where I can't serve you anymore. Husbands in the room, just a brief pause. That's something to aspire to. Can you say that the worst thing that you could face was coming to the point where you can't serve your wife anymore? Praise God for that. But as I was thinking about that, here's this woman. Who knows what this woman's future faced, how well she was provided for. It doesn't say anything to indicate she was wealthy. In fact, it says her son who's just died was young, so likely, this woman had nothing and was facing a very fearful future. And Jesus sees this scene in a moment, sizes it up, and his heart goes out to this woman, and it compels him to do something about it right now. That's why I think that this shows us not just that he's compassionate toward us as we experience death, but he hates it. Because in this moment, it's like he sees this whole scene, and he says, not today, death. Not this time, not this woman. And he doesn't wait to be asked. Think about so far in the, in the Gospel of Luke, every healing we've seen has been in response to a request, right? The centurion sends his, uh, ser- uh, his, his sorry, servants to go and ask Jesus to come heal. Crowds will bring their children to Jesus to heal. Friends carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus. There's always an appeal and a response, but this is the first time we see Jesus just seize the situation and he says, I'm going to fix it right now. He's indignant. I'm reminded of John 11 where Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb and he's already been buried and he encounters Mary and Martha, his sisters, and they're both distraught and in tears 
If only you had been here, Jesus, he might still be alive. And then he gets to the tomb and the whole funeral party's still there and they're crying and weeping and wailing along with the sisters. And it says Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. And it's not a word that just means he was really sad, but he was ticked off. He was indignant. He saw the havoc that death wreaks on families and people and his blood boiled. And we need this reassurance because when death strikes close to home for us, we always end up asking, why, Lord? I've prayed that why prayer many times in these last few years. Maybe you have. Why? Why him? Why her? Why so young? Why like that, God? And in the absence of answers, as to why in God's providence he has ordained these deaths at these times in these ways, what we do know is it's not because Jesus doesn't care. It's not because he doesn't feel the sting of death. If anyone knows the sting of death, it's Jesus. He experienced the pain of loss, of the death of loved ones like his own father and Lazarus and presumably more. But he's died. He has tasted death himself and a brutal one at that. He anguished in prayer in the garden the night before he was going to be arrested and wrestled with his heavenly father in prayer as he looked his impending death in the face. Jesus hates death. It's the last enemy to be destroyed. In fact, the reason Jesus was compelled to take on flesh and go to the cross willingly and give his life as a ransom was so that he could do something permanently about death. That's how much Jesus hated death and hates death. So that's the first thing we need to remember this morning and be reassured by is that Jesus hates death. And it's right for us to hate death and not just resign ourselves to, well, it's just part of the natural order of things. It's not God's original plan for his creation, for us in his image. And Jesus is going to do something about it. He has done something about it. Second thing I want us to see in here, Jesus can overrule death. Verses 14 and 15. To overrule something means that you uh, set aside a decision or a ruling that someone else made who has less authority. And you're able to come along and say, nope, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be like this. And Jesus has the authority to overrule death, which is a stunning thing to say. Because God has given death quite the amount of authority, has he not? Death exists because God warned in the very beginning, Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will die. If you choose to step around my good boundaries and act as though you are your own king, there will be a consequence and death entered in. And from that day forward, God has given death the authority to take with 100% um, completion every single life death has authority over until Jesus returns but not over Jesus. I was, the line in Isaac Watts' hymn, time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. That's an image. This powerful river and current and no one can fight it. You can try. You can eat kale and run and, and do everything you can, take vitamins to try to postpone that day. You can be extra safe. 
You can drive five you know, miles under the speed limit. You can look both ways, make full stops, but you can't overrule death. Neither can I. So that's amazing. Jesus can overrule death. He can say in this scene right, right here, not today, death. He just has to say a word, and he does say one word in here, and he overrules death. He crashes this funeral. We, we, we need to, do you feel the, the, the tension, the awkward tension of this scene? I mean, picture a funeral procession, and not only would the mother have been wailing, but in their culture, everyone along, the expectation was that loud weeping and wailing was a way you showed your community support. And so here's this powerful scene that you probably shouldn't interrupt. And Jesus sees it, and he walks straight to the widow who's grieving and says, don't weep. And then he gets in the way and he puts his hand on the, the, the board the, that they're carrying her son on and they stand still. And everyone's just standing still for a moment. Two crowds, the crowd with Jesus, what's going on here? The funeral procession crowd maybe is saying, who is this and what's going on here? And for us who are reading this story in the context of Luke's gospel, this has been building, right? We've seen Jesus' authority over sickness and demons, and even this guy who was on the brink of death, Jesus pulls him back. But for us, now we get to this scene, and it's like in this moment of stillness, it's a showdown between Jesus and death. Jesus has taken this son from the mother, and it's like, what, what are you going to do about it? And he calls the dead man back to life with a single word. He says, young man, I say to you, arise, get up. Jesus is the only one who can do this. Jesus is the only one whose voice can be heard by the dead and he can summon a soul back to their body and restore them to life. That's how much authority Jesus has and we see it here. Luke really makes the point clear in verse 15 because he says the dead man sat up and began to speak. It's a little bit funny. I think he very intentionally does that. Dead men don't sit up and speak. But the point is, a dead man could hear Jesus' voice and respond to it. He was very much alive. And then, even more beautifully, it says Jesus gives him back to his mother. That's my favorite line in this whole story. This isn't just about resuscitating this young man. It's about reuniting him with his heartbroken mother. And this is a sneak preview of what's to come for us, Grace. See, we have to remember, if you've read in the Gospels, this is, an, this is a rare occasion. Jesus doesn't raise many people from the dead in the Gospels. I think three and then he raises, rises from the dead. But he wasn't crashing funerals left and right as he went about his ministry. But when he comes again, it will be like the ultimate funeral crashing. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with me. I love this. Paul writes these words to a young church, young Christians, and he's, he's learned that they are, they're worried They've got some concerns because presumably some among them have begun to, to die and Jesus hasn't come back yet and they're not sure. What does that mean? Have they missed out? 
because they died before Jesus has come back again. And he writes to comfort and reassure them in verse four, chapter four, verse 13. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he doesn't tell them, don't grieve, but he says, I want you to grieve with hope. And you can, why? He says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. This we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Here it comes. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Here comes the funeral crashing. With a cry of command and the voice of an archangel, he's going to say a word. And with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. I want this to hit home. There is a day coming on God's calendar in the future that will happen and Jesus will descend and with a word, he will say, Jeff Dykstra, arise. He will call those who have fallen asleep in Christ back to life. He will say, Phil Davis, arise. He'll say, Wally Robbins, arise. And Jack Mitchell and Chris Mitchell and Labee Mubarak and Chuck Stein and Dave DeMille and Dave Koontz. That's just recent years here at Grace. He's going to say, arise. And they will rise. And what Paul says here, Jesus will give them back to those who love them. Keep reading. He says, then we who are alive, if we're among that group, who are left, we will be caught up together with them. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we together will always be with the Lord. So yes, ultimately, the greatest joy of that day is we will be with the Lord and we will see him. But another joy will be we will see him together, reunited with those in Christ that we've lost and for a time felt the separation of. Is that good news? If you've ever attended a graveside service, you know that moment as a casket is lowered into the grave, it just feels so final. It feels final, but that's where we have to say no. We have a word that's been declared to us from the Lord that it's not, that feeling is false and that for those in Christ who are buried are like a seed being planted in the ground that are gonna spring to life again at the word of Jesus and we have that as a guarantee. You know, this week I, got, I watched a bit of the live stream graveside service of Case Van Harningsveld's father who was 91 who knew the Lord um, in Holland it was almost all in Dutch, so I couldn't understand most of it, but he told us where to scan forward to in the video that was in English, and that was just before the casket was going to be lowered, they played a song in English from Handel's Messiah, and the song, if you know Handel's Messiah, is the trumpet shall sound, and Handel just put the words from this passage in First Thessalonians and First. Corinthians 15 uh, about death where is your sting and it puts it into this triumphant song with, with trumpet accompaniment, blaring trumpets and this deep bass voice soloist singing the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. That's the scene right there. A very humble little small funeral party at the graveside 
And that song was like this defiant declaration that this isn't over. Our Lord Jesus overrules death and will overrule death. And he will rise. And finally, our confidence in this is the last point here. It's grounded in this last thing about Jesus that our passage points us forward to. At this point, not directly, but um, in foreshadowing. In the last two verses, we're told the response that all these two crowds who just saw this happen, as you can imagine, fear gripped them. What is going on? He's alive. And they conclude two things. And both things that they conclude, they don't even know the half of it. They're onto something, but they don't even know what they're saying. The first thing that they assume is a great prophet has arisen among us. Why would they think that? Well, it's because Jesus has given off some serious Elijah vibes and Elisha vibes in this scene. For all those there who knew their, their scriptures, this scene was eerily reminiscent to a scene in 1 Kings 17 with Elijah and a widow and her dead son and to Elisha in 2 Kings 4 another, with another widow and her, and her dead son. If you remember the story in 1 Kings 17, the Holy Spirit sends Elijah to this city gate where he encounters this poor widow with her son and they've got their last scraps of ingredients and, and she's about to make one last meal and resign themselves to their impending death. And Elijah, um, by God's power, um, uh, does a miracle. And this woman's flour and oil, Elijah says, will never run out. And then in the very next scene, the son still gets ill and dies. And Elijah takes the son upstairs into his room and he cries out to the Lord in anguish, a, a wise sort of a prayer. And he says, Lord, send the spirit of life back into this child. And God does it. And it even has the line, just like in our passage right here, that he came down from the upper chamber and he delivered him to his mother. Same thing happens in 2 Kings 4. And, I don't, and it's not lost on these crowds. They see this and they go, I've, I've seen something like this before. God is speaking again. He sent, another, sent us another prophet like Elijah. But Elijah and Elisha have nothing on Jesus. They don't get it. He's not just a prophet. They, can, they could pray and beseech God to act and God could respond to their prayers, but Jesus can speak a word and call the dead back to life. And the second thing that they conclude is even more telling. They say, God has visited his people. That, that word visit is, to me is, is sort of weak. Visit in my brain sounds like you popped in to say hi for a short chat. But visit here means showing up with a purpose. The NIV says, God has come to help us. It's visiting to bring aid to people in need and distress. Do you remember back in Luke 1 when John the Baptist is born and Zechariah bursts forth with this, this, this prophecy about his son who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah? And the Messiah, when he comes, is going to bring salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And, and he says this, because of the tender mercy of God, the sunrise will visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. I love that image. So when Jesus come, comes, it's going to be like the sun rising on the shadow of death. And what does sunrise do to shadows? It makes them vanish. That's what this prophet, this great prophet, has visited to do. He's come to make death itself vanish. How is he going to do this? 
Well, we don't get it in our scene right here. So take a minute with me, and I want you to turn over to the book of Hebrews. We're going to spend a quick little time here touching down on four verses that remind us what Jesus has done to cause the sun to rise on the shadow of death because he's more than a prophet. Look at Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So this isn't just another Elijah. What is his son like? Well, he's appointed his son to be the heir of all things through whom he created the world This son is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. This son upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So let's stop. How did this son make purification for sins? In other words, how did this son come and cover over and satisfy the just wrath of God toward us for our rebellion? How did Jesus come to deal with God for our sins? Flip forward a page to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Well, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things. In other words, he became a man just like us so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is through his death. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So God's only son took on our flesh so that he could make himself vulnerable to death and give his life in our place as a ransom for many. Remember that word after, after he made purification for sins. The reason there's an after, and that wasn't just the end when he gave his life to make purification for sins, is because there was an after, that Jesus did not remain dead. He could not remain dead. Death does not overrule Jesus. After Jesus made purification for sins, he is seated now very much alive forever at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's because, like Peter preached on Pentecost, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death had no claim on Jesus. Or as Jesus himself said in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I can take it up again. And he has taken it up again. And because he's taken it up again, he now can offer us freely this gift of life through forgiveness of sins in his name and life with him forever. Third stop in Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 19. Because Jesus has taken his life back up again after having made purification for sins, we have this a sure, steadfast anchor for our souls, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So this morning, you may need this fresh word of encouragement right now because the shadow of death feels heavy and you need God's help to grieve with hope this morning. So this morning, in your weeping, I want you to hear Jesus saying to you, I hate this. I hate death. I've done something about it. 
I can overrule death. I have defeated death. Death will one day have a day where it's extinct. I love thinking about that thought of an eternal future. I think about it often like this, of things that, that like, like when I was a kid, like a rotary phone. I almost even remember rotary phones. You show a rotary phone to my kids and they're like, what? There's going to come a day in our eternal future where we'll think, remember death? Remember that was a thing? No, I don't remember. Be encouraged by that hope we have. This morning, you may need to hear this word because God is calling you to come alongside someone right now as the arms of Jesus to help do just what Paul said we are to do with this. Encourage one another with these things. But finally this morning, you may need to hear this message because you don't have this anchor of hope that I just described. Last stop in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, each of us has a day appointed for us unless Jesus returns first. And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you notice in those two verses, there are only two options ahead of us. Each person has a day appointed by God unless Jesus returns first, where they will stand before God as as judge and have to give an account for their life, every careless thought, every way in which you have lived in a way that failed to give God the glory that's due his name. And there's two options. Either God can deal uh, with your guilt personally or with Jesus. Someone has to deal with the guilt And God has graciously offered his son first to bear that guilt and consequence so that he can then offer to you the ability, like these verses said, to eagerly await his coming. Not anticipate with fear and trembling his coming, but eagerly await it, knowing I can rejoice when that day comes because God has dealt with my sin already, completely. That could be today for you. Maybe you're watching this morning on our live stream or later today, that could be you today. January 23rd could be the day that God dealt with your sins permanently at the cross and you received that offer by turning from your sin, surrendering your life to God in faith and saying, come into my life and help me walk in a new way. I plead with you this morning if that's you to do that. All of this is a picture of what we're about to celebrate right now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. As we eat bread, or a representation thereof, and drink this cup, by the way, a day is coming soon, I believe in February, where we're gonna tear the bread and dunk it thoroughly like Rick showed us a couple of weeks ago. But the bread as we eat it and the cup as we drink it are reminding us of how God dealt with our sin through Jesus at the cross He laid his life down as a ransom. He gave his body up as a sacrifice, as a perfect spotless sacrifice. And he shed his blood and God allowed that blood to be shed to the point of death. And he was buried so that we then could eagerly await his coming. 
If you aren't ready to take that step with Jesus yet this morning, I would ask you to refrain from this act of worship right now. But I would encourage you and urge you to keep coming or keep watching as we continue to study the life of Jesus in Luke's gospel and be honest and say, God, if this is real, if Jesus is who he claims to be and he's done what he's really said he's done, help me to understand it and believe it and turn to him. If you have taken that step, but you are, are, are knowingly right now in your life resisting God in some way, in some area of sin that you are not turning over to God, I urge you to turn that over to God this morning. Repent of it and celebrate this with, a, with, with an assured heart that God has dealt with Jesus even for that sin and he can help you put it uh, in your rearview mirror. So as we eat the bread and take the cup this morning together, let's remember Jesus' sacrifice for us and all that it promises to us. Why don't we take a second and open up that noisy cellophane here. We're about to sing. Our closing hymn has this line. These are the promises that these elements remind us Jesus has secured for us. Forever with the Lord. Amen, so let it be. Life from his death, we live in hope of immortality. Here in this body spent, we with creation grown, yet, nightly, we pitch our moving tent one day's march nearer home. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And when he'd given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do this together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, grace, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray. Lord, like the last line in the book of Revelation, we pray this morning, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. We thank you for your, the power of the cross. We thank you for the power of the good news of the cross, that we can run to it for refuge from wrath and to receive the full acceptance and eternal love of our God and creator. We thank you for that. And we thank you for this beautiful promise, not just that we will be with you forever, but that we will be reunited with all those in Christ forever and we will always together be with the Lord. Help us this morning, even as we may be weeping and grieving, to grieve with hope and walk in hope in Jesus' name. Amen.